things, but I'm excited about this opportunity uh, to introduce to you a new staff member. His name's Richard Toussaint, and uh, uh, a week, uh, two weeks ago, we, we hired Richard to be the pastor at the chapel. Uh, Richard comes to us from a, another great local church. Uh, he was the teaching pastor there uh, most recently, and uh, was just ready to transition into something else. And God brought him right at the beginning of this whole shutdown to us. We went through you know months of talking and praying. And, uh, and just recently I had the privilege of offering the position and God directed him uh, to be a part of our team. He is a gifted communicator. He's coming to you today uh, with God's word. Um, everybody, this is my friend and our new staff mate, Richard Toussaint. Hey, thank you so much, Pastor Mark, for that wonderful introduction. Thank you, Baylife Church and the chapel for welcoming my family and I into your family. I just wanna take the time to give Pastor Mark and Pastor Tom some honor. The church, Baylife, has been around for a very long time. And I know in heaven, there's a Rolodex of saints that can honestly say if it wasn't for the work that Baylife has done, that they, through the grace of God, their life wouldn't have been influenced as much as it has. So a lot of influential men, a lot of great orators have stood behind this sacred desk and I just want to tell you, Pastor Mark, and the leadership of Bay Life Church, thank you for the opportunity of inviting me and bringing me here to share. Speaking of family, I would like to talk to you about my family. Um, this is my wife, Janice, my son, Richard, and my young daughter, she is eight months old. Her name is Catalina. So now, there is a word that I believe the Lord has given me to share with you. That word comes from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, your iPhone, your iPad, or even your eyeballs, I ask that you join with me now and let's read the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 together in the entire context of its chapter. So here read of God's holy word. And David said, is there anyone left at the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there anyone not still of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Verse 5, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard as a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul. And all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce. 
that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please help. Amen. So the question that I have for you today, the thought that I would like to bring to you, goes a little something like this. Has something ever happened to you as a child that followed you into your adulthood? Has something ever happened to you as a child that followed you into your adulthood? Isn't it amazing how as a young child, we can go through some sort of trauma and then even as an adult, it follows us and sometimes we don't even know it. Man, I remember the story. I was about eight years old and I went to the swimming pool and my brother was there with his friends. And like a typical younger brother, I tagged along and I wanted to jump into fun with the rest of them. But there was one problem. I couldn't swim. So I said, wait a minute. There's pool. There's there's water. There's my brother. I have a solution to the problem. I am going to ask my brother to teach me how to swim. So I said, hey, big bro, can you teach me how to swim? Now, let me be honest with you. I had a notion of how that conversation would go in my head. And it went a little something like this. Hey, bro, can you teach me how to swim? He leaves his friends that he was having fun with. And he goes to the little brother who tagged along and said, of course, I'll teach you how to swim. And then he brings me to the three feet side of the pool. And then he shows me delicately how to stroke and stride through water, the the beautiful balance of a backstroke. And I just imagine my brother demonstrating care and teaching his younger sibling how to swim. So with that in mind, I said, brother, can you teach me how to swim? And he said, you want me to teach you how to swim? And I was like, man, this is already going exactly how I imagined. So he jumped out of the water. He left his friends. I said, what a wonderful big brother I have. And he grabbed me. I said, wait a minute, that's a little too tight. Now you can loosen up a little bit. And he picked me up and I was like, man, he, he's ready to do this. And he took me to eight feet and he threw me in the pool and he walked away. And here I am and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm literally grasping for life and I'm pounding water and I'm trying to come up. And to my amazement, I am drowning. And then my brother jumps in the pool like the hero he is and grabs me and brings me out. And he looks at me and says the most perplexing thing. He asked me a question. You really didn't know how to swim? I was like, what? That's why I asked you. Fast forward, it's my freshman year in college. 
Man, we're having a pool party with some friends. Everyone shows up in their bathing suits and swim trunks, but not this guy. I am six foot one, well, six foot in the possible one, over 200 pounds, and I am fully dressed in jeans, sneakers, a button-down t-shirt, and a cell phone in my hand, because we all know the rule at swim parties. If you have a cell phone in your hand, you're not allowed to go into the water. So here I am, and I'm having a good time, sitting as far back from the water as I possibly could, and then my my friends, lo and behold, decided that they wanted to play a joke on this guy who was fully dressed. They said, hey, let's throw Richard in the pool. And immediately my eyes opened wide. And before I could run, I was surrounded by a wall of friends or so-called friends. And they grabbed me and they started dragging me to the pool and I'm fighting with everything within me. And here is the interesting part. I'm not fighting to not getting the pool because I don't want to get wet. I'm fighting to not getting the pool because there's a little boy inside of me. There's a eight-year-old Richard who's been traumatized by being thrown into the pool by his big brother. So here I am afraid and ashamed that if I get thrown into the pool, I would be an embarrassment like I was at eight years old as a freshman year in college. And I'm wrestling and I'm gripped off of something that happened to me as a young child. Well, this story opens with David, who is now the king of Jerusalem. And something happened to David as a young kid that has followed him through his adulthood. You see, when David was between the ages of 10 to 15 years old, a religious leader known as a priest came to his house and performed a ceremony with him or on him. And after the ceremony was over, the, the priest told David, you will, be the, you will be the next king of Israel. Well, there was only one problem. Israel already had a king, and that king already had a son. You see, the way how this works is, once there is a king, and he passes or he is killed in war or he's ill and something happens to him, the next person in line is his son or his daughter. So saying that David would be the next king automatically puts him at aught with the kingdom. To make matters worse, there was this big battle going on and there was this Philistine giant by the name of Goliath and David shows up on this battlefield and he wasn't even young enough to fight. So he was under the age of 20, according to the laws of Israel. And David shows up, sees this giant, the giant challenges the entire army to a single bout, a one in one, a mano a mano, me and you, your best man versus me. Now, that was supposed to be where the king should step up and fight. But the king didn't. That king, his name is Saul. David shows up and David fights this giant. And one of the most beautiful victories in all of Israel was won by a boy. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, when they were coming home, people were singing songs of the victory. And one of the songs that they sang went a little something like this. Saul slayed his thousands, but David slayed his ten thousands. And if I was David, I can imagine him saying, no, 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 please stop it. Don't say that. And when Saul heard those words, the Bible says that he was enraged and he became jealous of David. 
And for 15 years of David's life, Saul wanted to kill David. For 15 years, he ran. But then verse one opens up and it also talks about this guy named Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul and him and David were best friends. So when David said, is there anyone from the house of Saul that I can show mercy to? What David is really saying is, is there anybody from my enemy's house that I can show mercy to? You see, what was supposed to happen the minute you assume the reign of a king, everyone from the previous regime, you're supposed to kill them. The reason why you're supposed to kill them is if they stay alive, they still have a rightful heir of the throne that could possibly overtake you. So it would behoove you to execute them. But they've said, absolutely not. Is there anybody here for the sake of Jonathan that I can come and show mercy to? Why is he bringing up Jonathan? Do you remember as a kid when you made a promise? Do you remember the worth of a promise? Man, I don't know where you're from, but where I'm from, whenever we made promise, we, we went all in on our promises. We, we would say silly things like, hey, man, I cross my heart and I hope to die. And then we would say the second line, maybe you can join me in it, is the only thing that's worse than death. Man, stick a needle in my eye. And if we wanted to level up, or maybe you didn't like putting death in yourself, right? And you wanted to level up, man, we would look at our hands and we would pull out our pinky. And we would lock pinkies together and we'd say, hey, man, do you pinky promise? Or maybe you were real bold. Man, you would take some dirt and you would ball it up and, and you would spit in your hand and, and you would shake hands and say, do you promise? Well, I don't know if they cross their hearts and hope to die or they pinky promise or they spit in the hand and shook it. I don't know what David and Jonathan did, but all I know is in 1 Samuel chapter 20, they made a promise and a covenant to each other that if David were to be king, that he would not eradicate, he would not wipe out Jonathan's bloodline. So ironically here, as a leader, David is faced with this perplexing situation. Do I do what I should do or do I do what I promise to do? You see, the thing about it is only him and Jonathan made the promise. So if David decided to go against the promise, no one would ever actually know that he is going against his word but God. But here is something I want to say to all the leaders out there. There is a difference between what you ought to do and what you should do. You see, what he should do is kill this young man. However, what he ought to do is remember the promise and the grace that is in the gospel and say, hey, I should bring him in. Now, this reminds me of the messiness of life. David is about to aid his gravest enemy's grandson, but also he's in love with them because it's the son of his best friend. And isn't that the messiness of life? that the two things that are not supposed to be, they actually are. My gravest enemy and my deepest friend come from the same house. And here I have a decision to make. So do I act based on the hate that I have the right to give or the love that I'm supposed to give? Man. And here's David. Is there anybody from my enemy's house that I should show love to? 
And it's not always enough to ask the question, but we need to follow through in our promises. David didn't call somebody from his house. He called somebody from his enemy's house, introduced Brother Ziba. And he said, Ziba, is there anybody from this house? If anybody should know, you should know. David is making an earnest try to discover this person. And Ziba shows up and Ziba says, my king, there's actually one person that might be of interest to you. Ironically, his father is Jonathan, your old best friend. And his name is Mephibosheth. He is lame in both feet. And when I read that, my heart immediately jumped. And I said, isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing how people would refer to you based on your shortcomings and not your actual worth. This brother was a young prince, but he's referred to as lame in both feet. This brother was supposed to be the heir to the kingdom, but he's referred to as lame in both feet. And to make matters worse, Ziba says, man, he is in this place called Lodabar. The place Lodabar means a place of no communication, no pasture. Matter of fact, there is nothing good that happens in Lodabar. Lodabar is that place where if someone visits you, it's not by accident, it's intentional. Matter of fact, there is no signal in Lodabar. Verizon don't even go to Lodabar. And here he is in this place called Lodabar. And the first question I had was, how did he get there? In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it talks about this battle that happened that in one day, in the matter of one event, Mephibosheth's grandfather, the king, and Mephibosheth's father, the prince, died in battle. And when word got back to Jezreel that the king and the prince were slain in battle, there was this young nurse that was in charge of five-year-old Mephibosheth. And in a haste to run to protect the enemy from coming in and killing and harming this young boy, she picks him up in haste and she begins to run with him. But as she is running, she drops him and he became lame in both feet. What happens when the one who is supposed to help you is actually the one who harms you? What happens when the one who is supposed to help you harms you? What happens when the pastor that you trust is the one who betrays that trust? What happens when the uncle that you're supposed to have faith in is the uncle that betrays your innocence? What happened when the guy that you place your love in, the girl that you place your comfort in, what happened when the one who was supposed to be around you and to aid you is the one who is against you, but by accident? You see, there are two parties when things happen accidentally. There's a party that does the harm, and then there's a party that receives the harm. If you're that nurse today that dropped Mephibosheth by accident, what happens to your conscience? What happens to you knowing that, man, all oh, those an accident, I now have to live with the guilt that I have harmed somebody? I wonder if there's somebody watching right now that has to live with the guilt of something you did by accident. And then there is the one whom the wrong was done too. And that's five-year-old Mephibosheth. 
Well, guess what? Mephibosheth isn't five years old anymore, but the harm that was done to him as a child, it still rings in his ear to the present day. Can you imagine the mental wellness of a five-year-old boy being dropped and being lamed in both feet when he was supposed to be the prince, when he was supposed to be the king, when he was supposed to be the next ruler, but now he is lame in both feet and he is in a place of no pasture? Can you imagine what his mental psyche is before there was anything known as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? Young Mephibosheth at the age of five was going through PTSD. I can imagine young Mephibosheth waking up with nightmares of being dropped and the promises that he was told as a kid is no longer available to him because of an accident. Can you imagine young Mephibosheth? Can you imagine what, what this has done to him? He is in a place of no pasture, but yet on the other side of the promise, there is this king by the name of David that the Lord said, I will make you lie down in green pastures, but you're in a place of no pasture. And the comparison game begins to happen. And poor young Mephibosheth, is in isolation. He is hiding in Lodabar. Come close, come close, come close. Are you in Lodabar today? Did something happen to you as a young child that even today as an adult, it still follows you? And here is the horrible part about Lodabar. You see, sometimes in Lodabar, the people around you start saying things like, get over it, toughen up. This happened so long ago. You're, you're still going through that? Man, there is a difference between acting like something is wrong or acting like nothing is wrong and dealing with your problems. There is a difference between suppressing your emotions and dealing with your emotions. You see, when you suppress your emotions, you're only fine until something triggers you. But when you deal with your emotions, you are whole. But the thing about Lodabar is, there is no way for you to deal with your emotions. It just is. And the crazy part is, Mephibosheth gets married in Lodabar, and he has kids in Lodabar. And there's some of you who are married in Lodabar and you have children in Lodabar, but there are portions of your life that you do not talk about because you are still wounded from something that happened to you as a child. You see, the things about wounds as a child, it may come in external forms or it may be internal tensions. I remember as a young kid, I was playing on the playground and a young kid took a rock and he threw it across the playground and he accidentally hit me in my head. I still have the scar on my forehead for where that rock hit me. I have to live with the memory that somebody haphazardly hit me in my head. I think it affected my eyes, but hey, I can't prove it. But nonetheless, I have to live with that. Now, don't talk about it. And some of you are living with it and some of you, we, we know how to come to church and we know how to sound real proper and theological. We can explain propitiation through expiation. We can explain the grace and the lineage of Christ through David. And we can explain all these wonderful theological treaties, but we're unable to give our children hugs. 
and tell them, I love you. We're able to host wonderful parties and bring people to our homes and and make them feel special. But in the midst of making them feel special, we're in a room filled with people and we feel alone because we are in Lodabar. There is no communication coming into the soul. And no matter how you try to fill the void, you are still in a place of no pasture, of no communication, of nothing happening around you. And you are lost. And at nighttime, you may even cry when no one is looking. You feel fatigued. You don't want to get out of bed. You feel lackadaisical because you are supposed to be something and all you can see is what you are not instead of who you are. You are a young prince. You are a young ruler. You are a young man of God. You come from a strong lineage. You come from a strong family. But all you can see is I am lame in both feet. And Mephibosheth is going through something very, very deep and he is going through something internally perilous. Here's the worst part about Lodabar. Lodabar is not a place that you can leave on your own. But here is where the story begins to turn. David asks, where is he? And they said Lodabar. And it goes to show me something, that God knows exactly where you are. And he will not allow you to stay there. So the Lord deals with his location and he goes and he gets him from Lodabar. But here is the thing about leaving Lodabar. My friend, you you're going to have to face some fears when you're leaving Lodabar. You see, all his life, this young brother was told that, hey, if David were to find you, David is going to try to kill you. So could you imagine the fear that gripped his heart? The minute he heard the door sound, the the minute the chariots arose and there was armor and there were shields and there were swords and there were soldiers walking up to the door and pounded it and says, Mephibosheth, we know you're in there. We are the royal guards of David and we have come to escort you to the place of Jerusalem, to the holy palace. Could you imagine the fear that is in his heart? Can you imagine Mephibosheth saying, well, I waited for this my entire life. Let's get it over with. And as Mephibosheth is hoarding on that chariot, as he's getting on that buggy, I can imagine Mephibosheth feeling like, man, this is the last time I'll see trees. Man, this is the last time I get to to feel the wind blowing across my face. I can imagine him remembering the stories that, hey, man, your grandfather was the first king of Israel. And him saying, man, that was supposed to be me. I can imagine him feeling when when he immediately walked into the palace, the stories that was told about his his father, that at the age of 15, your father defeated the Philistine army by himself. I can imagine him saying, man, this is supposed to be my house, my land. And then he sees the man who has it all. And they say Mephibosheth falls to his face and lays prostrate. Well, here is something that is very interesting to me. Mephibosheth lays down before David, but he's lame in both feet. In order for him to lay down the tension of his heart, his inability has to be affected. So he has to bypass what he is not and lay down in all vulnerability and humility before this king who can take his life and say, I am your servant. 
And David doesn't see his wounds. David sees his worth. I can imagine David looking into the eyes of Mephibosheth. And he isn't seeing someone who is lame in both feet. He's seeing the facial structure of his best friend. He's seeing the, the look and he's reminiscing about the covenant that he made with his friend. And he immediately looks at him and says, you know what? Hey, everything that belonged to your grandfather, everything that belongs to your father, I am giving to you. And I can imagine Mephibosheth being perplexed. And then, you know, his self-worth is really down because he says, what am I? I'm a dog. Why is it that you're treating me like this? And David says, man, I'm going to bypass this for Jonathan's sake. Everything, Ziba, you're going to follow him and you're going to serve him. And here is the truth of the matter. It isn't because of anything that Mephibosheth did for him to gain the favor of David. It is because of a covenant that was made with his father that now he is blessed. Now, for some of you, you missed it. It's just like our life. We're not blessed and we're not called into the throne room of God because of something that we have done. It is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, David in this represents a greater king who is to come. And that king, his name is Jesus. In the book of Matthew, there's a genealogy that says Jesus comes from the bloodline of David. So this story, who was sandwiched between two wars, shows peace that happens within a king. And here is David, and he is showing mercy based on a covenant that has nothing to do with the person in front of him. And one day, that's going to be me and you. God is going to show us mercy, but not based on anything that we have done, but based on the sacrifice of his son. And I read that and I said, "Whoa, that is good. And then the Lord asked me a question. He said, Richard. How did the story end for Mephibosheth? I said, Lord, well, in the last passage of scripture, it says that he now lives in Jerusalem. He sits at the king's table and he is lame in both feet. And it says, Richard, how did the story start for Mephibosheth? Well, Lord, it started when he was in a house in Lodabar, a place of no pasture. And the Lord said, where is he now? Well, Lord, he is in Jerusalem, the city that David built, the city that means the city of peace. So wait, he went from a place of no pasture, no communication to a city of peace. And the Lord is saying that that is what I do to my people. I bring them from a place where they cannot save themselves and I bring them to a place of peace. He said, Richard, what is the condition of this man? I said, well, Lord, it says that he eats at the king's table and God begins to reveal to me. You know what's so special about eating at the king's table when you're a man who is lame in both feet? I said, well, Lord, speak to me. And the scriptures literally took on anthropomorphic form and the, and the words rose from the pages. And it said, Richard, if you are lame in both feet and you are sitting at the king's table, no one can tell that you are lame. And isn't that the glories of God? That he brings us into a place in his presence where our infirmities, they're not non-existent, but next to him, they don't matter because his glory covers us. And it ends with saying, but he was lame in both feet. And God says, man, I may not remove the wound, but I save the person. Man, I may not remove the wound, but I rescue and I redeem the person. And then the Lord asked me this final question, Richard, who is Mephibosheth? 
And I said, Lord, Mephibosheth is the, the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. He says, no, 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 no. Who is Mephibosheth? And this was it. It's amazing to see others in the gospel. But God showed me that Mephibosheth was me. The story is all good and dandy when it's someone else who was wounded as a child and they got to a place as an adult and that thing followed him. But the Lord said, Richard, you are Mephibosheth. He says, Richard, you were in a dark place confounded by your own sin, by your own doubt. You were lost in sin and iniquity and you were in a condition that you couldn't get yourself off of. But it was by the grace of God. It was by the love of God. It was by a covenant that was made before you were born that I sought you out and I took you from the place from whence you were and I brought you into my presence and I brought you into my courts and I brought you in with my table and it wasn't because you did anything it was because Christ did everything and when I looked at you I didn't see a lame boy but I saw the characteristics of my son I saw his nail pierced hands and his scarred side that was wounded I saw that the iniquity of his peace was laid upon someone else and by his stripes by the blood that was shed on Calvary by what he did I saw that through your eyes through my son and I saved you says you are Mephibosheth you are Mephibosheth and the Lord is saying that you do not have to stay in Lodabar you don't have to toughen up. You don't have to man up. You don't have to suppress it. All you have to do is answer the knock at the door. It says, Lord, I will follow you to your palace. I am your servant. Here's my closing story. My wife was born in Puerto Rico. She is a full-breaded Boricua. In all Spanishness, whatever you think of a beautiful Spanish woman, man, she encompasses that. She moved from Puerto Rico to the United States at a young age, and while she went to school, she had to read out loud. But there was only one problem. She came from a country where the primary language was Spanish and not English. So while she was in class, she was forced on a weekly basis to read out loud. And kids demeaned her and kids made fun of her. And every single week she had to endure the torture of being made fun of by her peers. And when it happened, my wife made a self oath that many of us make whenever we go through something traumatic. I will never let anyone else do that to me as long as I live. Fast forward some odd years. It's my first year in marriage and I'm trying to be the man of God that the Lord has designed me to be. I want to be a man that leads his family in prayer. So I bring my wife down and we start to establish a discipline and a routine of prayer. So I have my journal and I open my journal and I pray over the list of things that somebody may have said, Pastor, can you pray for me? So I wrote it down and we were praying and then I get to one night saying, hey, honey, would you mind praying tonight? And my wife looks at me square in my dark brown eyes and said, no. So immediately I thought, honey, is something wrong with your voice? Are you, you, are you ill? Is something wrong? 
And she says, there's nothing wrong. Well, the next night I prayed. I turned to her and said, honey, would you like to pray? And she says, no, and I don't want to talk about it. Man, I'm starting to feel some kind of way. Next night I'm praying. And then I said, honey, would you like to pray? And she said, no, and I don't want to talk about it. By this time, I am boiling with righteous indignation. But the Lord said, peace, be still. The next night I'm praying again and I look and I didn't even say anything. And she broke down in tears and said, honey, it's nothing that you did. When I was a kid, they make fun of me. They made fun of me as a kid. And I'm afraid to pray in front of my own husband. And I am ashamed because you pray so eloquently. And I'm ashamed that if I don't pray well enough, that you're going to make fun of me. And I looked at my wife and I said, you are the daughter of the Most High King. The Lord sculpted you and he made you and you are beautiful and your mind functions well. You are the most educated woman that I know. And let me tell you something. What happened to you in the past does not define who you are in the present. And I want you to know that your husband will never make fun of you for something that somebody else did. And I am here to walk with you and so you can lean on me and I will pray with you as we pray together. Bit by bit, my wife started to pray. Long story short, now I can't keep the woman quiet. When I'm ready to go to bed, she is over here praying for 30 and 45 minutes in an hour. She wants to tarry long in the presence of God and she wants to pray for everybody under the sun. But it did not start that way. And my testimony to you is however you are will not end that way. There is a God who rescues and that God is knocking at the door today and he wants to rescue you. And thank you for allowing me to share this right now in the comment section. If you would like prayer for anything, man, feel free to type in anything that you would like prayer for. Man, there is a team right now that the invisible team that you are unable to see, but they have been waiting for this. They have been fasting for this and they have been preparing for this. Anything that you need prayer of, you can put it in the chat right now and we are going to pray for you. And again, Baylife family, thank you so much. Chapel family, thank you so much. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please help. Amen.